Live from Portland, Oregon, this is Independent Animation with Trevor and Rob, and today we're changing the name slightly to Independent Animation with Trevor and Rob and Paul Herod. Hi there. Is Paul. Is it really live from Portland? It's not really live from no. Portland. Okay, but that's what's live now? It's, that'll be the uh, other thing. That'll be the yeah, yeah. title that it's we change. In, it's in the coffin from Portland. Yeah. Ten years ago in Portland. Yeah. yeah. Well, we um, <laughs> in the grave in Portland. We we had a we had a lot of success on uh, during the recording of the last podcast because we are not in a studio. We are in my echoey cabin porn esque living room. It was a little colder last time. We had a fire going, so there was this little. Oh yeah, you could hear the this lovely little crackle. The, the fire. Uh, and if you look out the window right now, you can see the pig laying in the dirt. Can I say I'm more comfortable though with the pig outside? Like I'm oh, versus being the inside? inside before? The pig was inside before. And actually that's not, I mean, the pig itself, like just having a pig, no big deal. But this, but this pig was in heat and, and made me nervous. Right. And was it so, snorting during the podcast? Uh, no, she was quiet during the podcast last time. Yeah. But just she was, she has an ominous presence. Right. Well, she, she's. Just as a present. Yeah, I'm not. She uh, was looking for a romance. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm a married uh, man. Um, <laughs> so uh, as many times as I've seen Deliverance, uh, even though you're a guest today, Paul, um, with our podcast, you're not an unfamiliar face. I think this is 2018. So you and I have worked together since 2012. At least. At least, yeah. yeah. You, um, uh, so we've all. I've known. Back. I've known Paul since 1999. No, yeah. what yeah. is almost 20 years? Yeah. yeah. What is 1999? Is that Gary and Mike? Yeah. Uh, Gary and Mike. Yeah. What did you do on Gary and Mike? I directed the first episode of Gary and Mike. <gasps> not the you pilot. didn't. So much not unlike the situation you're describing. In fact, the uh, the pilot episode was actually shot about three episodes down. And uh, because I was an experienced director on the PJs, they wanted me to take it for a bit of a test drive. So you, how, how, many, how many episodes did you rock out on the PJs? I did five episodes of the PJs. Were you a mean director? Were you yelling and screaming at everybody? And be like, do your fucking job! Paul was the nice director. Utter tyrant. No, no. I, I'm... No, actually, PJs, PJs, we had a pretty mellow team for the most part. It was pretty amazing because we actually got to a point where in the third season, we were working uh, four-day weeks. We, people talk about that. Um, Octavia talks about that a lot, that moving from five eight-hour days to four ten-hour days. So everybody got paid the same, Mm -hmm. but your efficiency was so... So high that everybody got a three-day weekend. Well, what I liked about it was I came into work anyway on Friday, and that was my catch-up day. That was the day when I could start roughing out storyboards mm-hmm. for the next episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sometimes the editors would come in so I could work with them. But it was, you know, it was a day where I could get a whole bunch of shit done without, uh, you know, constantly being pulled onto the set. Because the animators were mostly 
taking that day off. And we're a needy bunch, so the other four days we're definitely <laughs> animators calling for Paul. Well, we talked we talked about the PJs, and we talked about Gary and Mike on the last um, episode with Rob, and that. Tell me if this is an accurate statement or not, Paul. From a geographic perspective, we're talking about uh, the stop motion activity that was happening in the late '90s in Portland, Oregon. But you're not. You weren't hailing from Portland in the eighties and nineties, you were working in Los Angeles. I worked in Los Angeles in the eighties and very early nineties. I came to Portland in, uh, 92. Were you, is it accurate to say that you were part of the team that helped take the clay aesthetic from the Will Vinton studios and move more toward, um, silicone and more of the refined, art direction so so really what we're talking about is going from claymation to what we know now today as stop motion stop frame animation yeah i think so i i I think i was pretty pretty instrumental in that that's what i heard i became many people have told that about uh uh, said that about you to me yeah you were uh, part of that guard i came up with um actually it was uh it was interesting how it happened uh i had come up in 91 to visit a few of my friends, animators who I'd worked with down in LA, people like Gerald Patton, <clears throat> um, yeah. and love that man. Uh, Shell Hipple, who was, uh, uh, here at the time. And I was visiting them and also reconnecting with, uh, Joanna Priestley, who I had gone to school with at Cal arts. Uh, and, I, she, she, uh, uh, introduced me to Marilyn Zornado mm-hmm. as a producer at Will Vinton Studios. And so while I was up here, I went to, um, the Vinton Studios and met with her and with David Altschul and showed them my reel and pointed out that I had done a bunch of work with David Daniels, uh, in LA. At Broadway and, Arts? Uh, no, well, a little bit, uh, with, uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse which wasn't that broadcast arts anymore. It's broadcast arts. And they were still, broadcast arts was still in New York. New right? York. Uh, David had worked on Pee Wee's Playhouse when they first started out. And then uh, when they moved to LA, I came on, I designed sets uh, for the new opening title sequence and built some puppets for them. And, uh, Anyway, David and I had a long, long relationship. We did a lot of commercials together. And he was directing for Will Vinton at that time in 91 when you came to visit? No, he wasn't. Uh, He and I were working on, we'd been working on a lot of projects. I I actually let David Altschul and Marilyn know about David. And they mm. took an interest in in working with him. So they said, "Hey, thanks for showing us your real Paul, but we're really actually just interested." In David and then Daniels. you saw them last year, and they said, "Hey, Paul, yeah, thanks a lot." <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm kidding. Uh, I love David. David. Uh, Full disclosure: David was uh, effectively our old boss for the last decade. Right. 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 You, Paul, me, Paul, Trevor, Paul Rob. With and for David. Yeah. Um, Salt of the earth, that man. The, um, yeah, for those who don't know who David Daniels is, he developed an amazing 
animation technique called uh, Stratacut, uh, which involves sculpting an entire sequence through a giant loaf of plasticine, uh, actually animating the movement of characters and doing things like lip sync, um, and then slicing through this big loaf, kind of like a bunt cake, and the resultant effect is an animated sequence, and it's quite psychedelic and yeah. bizarre. And Good job, Paul. Looking. I, I would not have known how to describe, describe Stratocut without using like craft beads as a example or something. Like I never know how to make that make sense, but that was good. But it feels when you look at that work, it, 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 it's, it's as distinct as looking at Bill Plimpton's work. Like, yeah. you know, that moment in time where you're like, holy shit. Okay. So that's 1986 to, to 89, right? There was like a year where everybody was doing this beautiful strata cut. People were like not ripping off David, but it, it helped contribute to like right. the aesthetic of that. It era, right? It wasn't entirely a brand new idea as far as animation. Um, uh, really? I think, was it Oscar Fishing? I think it was. Who did the, he did experiments with, with animating in wax. Very similar thing. But they were all abstract. Yeah. You know, it was just a matter of, you know, circles and shapes and everything, uh, you know, created within different uh, densities of wax and, then, and so there was like visual activity and up. movement but it wasn't like but it wasn't, you suddenly see the Jackson 5 spinning in yeah. 360 <laughs> or whatever David did yeah yeah, yeah. Well, and I think also that my, my at least my uh, I think that the thing that makes Stratocut really special is is knowing the process or like seeing the log in the animation or seeing a behind the scenes as right. weird as that sounds that gives so much more oomph to the animation when you see it because it really is a mind bender when you see a 3D object rotating or something. Yeah. Right. You can't you can't get your head around how someone could um pre-visualize that and then you spend 5 minutes with David and you're like, "Oh yeah, this I understand yeah. now. This makes yeah. sense." He's you know, I I I think he's a theoretical physicist at heart mm -hmm. and he's able to you know, uh, create those kinds of, of, uh, formulas in his head. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he and I went to Cal arts together. Uh, and so I saw this technique as kind of as it was being developed and it was just an amazing thing to, to behold anyway. <laughs> Wait, but can I ask you a question about that time at Cal arts? Um, why was everybody topless when they animated? Why, when I look at photographs of of um, that time period when you're talking about David Daniels discovering uh, Stratocut at school, and then even like spilling into like the late '80s and '90s, all the dudes are just topless, animating topless. It's like the most naked event in stop motion I've ever seen. It's, but you never see that now. Yes, you do. Sure. Wait, I, stop motion animators are, no, yeah. are, are shirtless all the time. Yeah. Really. It's where have I been? There's a there's a couple that are pantsless, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, I've seen. Okay, I've seen the tank tops. I've seen the Andre the Giant. What yeah. would barely passes a tank top <clears throat> on several like motion pictures. Ballcaster used to, you know, basically be in in trunks all yeah. the time. He was just wearing like speedos, like well, chow. Not, not, not Euro trash speedos. But <laughs> a, a little more leg on them than that. <laughs> Apologies to all our European not, listeners not, out not, there. Not a, not a mankini or anything mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, it's uh, 
Um, and still, I mean, even on... Uh, because most stages where stop motion is shot don't have air conditioning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're just big heat collectors. Because they're like, do you want got- free peanut butter and jelly or do you want AC? And everyone's like, well, I'd rather have free peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's... There, you know, you're 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 talking not about one setup, but but multiple setups, all of which have light their lights on. Yeah, and, and we're it still just heats the place up yeah. so fast. On on uh, Isle of Dogs, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the folks there, the younger guys, you know, were shirtless. Oh, like uh, of, what's the like older kid? guys had like rash guards and yeah, right. <laughs> but the, you guys animated with a young kid that all the the girls were dying for on Anomalisa, Daniel Gill. This is one of the animators that would animate topless. Oh, yeah, Dan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he he would sunbathe yeah, topless between shots on Anomalisa, and all the girls on the crew would find a there reason was, to walk outside. You know, if I look like Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dan's a handsome young man. He is a good looking I didn't guy. even look that handsome when I was his age. Yeah. But he's so, a kid, though, too. He's like 25. No. Should, we, should, we, should we time travel to... Uh, to Lil Paul, Lil, Lil Paul's Paul. Lil sure, Paul start. Sure, sure. You can go what, back there. what was what was uh, what got you into this mess? Um, That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure because I think my interest in it goes back further than my memory. Sure. Um, I sure loved monsters, and I sure loved dinosaurs. I was. I was very dinosaur crazy when I was little. Uh, I had all the plastic dinosaurs, and I knew the names of all of them, even the ones that have been proven since to not exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can imagine that things like King Kong, seeing King Kong on television, uh, just thrilled me no end. Um, I didn't. I, I found a lot of it tense but i wasn't one of those kids generally who ran away from uh scary monster stuff in fact we were, uh, I, I just took my um 11 year old <clears throat> grandnephew to see jurassic jurassic world mm-hmm. the new jurassic world movie mm-hmm. and monsters eating people didn't bother him at all mm-hmm. but it what he hated was suspense yeah what freaked him out was yep. like the little girl sneaking through the mansion. Mm-hmm. That's what he couldn't handle. He right. had to go. Because he's not a monster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's a little kid. <laughs> and something's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Right. And just the, yeah, yeah, that, totally. that tension. And, I, and my mother uh, told me that she was amazed that I could watch all kinds of horror films and see people, you know, devoured by monsters and dinosaurs and all that sort of thing and didn't bother me at all. But during a uh, watching a film version of Tom Sawyer, there's a scene where Tom and Becky get lost in a cave. Mm-hmm. And that's what freaked me out, apparently. That's the thing that she remembers totally freaked me out. And it totally, it totally makes really sense. Little, yeah. Is, is two kids lost in a cave. Yeah, that's much scary. That's much more real life scary. Yeah. I, had, I was terrified of basically like 70s drive-in movie cinema like not the not ever what was going on but all that like everything being orange and wide angle fisheye lenses of people with strange noses and stuff like that just totally freaked me out and i think that that was like 
it was the all of the most terrifying people of the time that I was growing up highlighted. Like, right. I think I recently saw uh, Last House on the Left, and I was like, it's not really that scary of a movie, but it just has terrifying looking people shot terrifyingly. Yeah, and and that low production value and everything was well, really actually, scary. I think the, the low I production seen that value really serves horror. Mm-hmm. I, in a lot of ways, I don't. I mean, there are some exceptions, but I think big budgets actually ruin horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a perfect example. You don't actually see much of anything. There's blood, but you don't see what you're imagining mm-hmm. in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too, they had a big budget. They could show people being skinned alive and... and and all of the mutilation. It's not scary at all. Yeah, 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 totally. Also, after I watch uh, the original, um, I always feel like I need to take a nap after listening to that woman scream for like an hour. She screams for like half the movie, and it's draining. It's her screaming and the soundtrack. Yeah. The soundtrack is amazing on that film. It's just relentless. Anyway... Uh, going back. Um, well, let's let's hold that thought for one sec. Let's let's break for our sponsors and come right back and dig deep into Paul's childhood and psyche. And we're back with Paul Herod, most recently um, served as production designer on Isle of Dogs. Um, and he is sitting in our living room and we were probing super deep into his upbringing, which I don't I don't know if I've seen you since I saw I think the last time I saw you, I hadn't seen the movie yet, but it's yeah, I don't think it had come out. Yet. Fucking gorgeous! Oh, thanks. It's so beautiful, and there's so much. It's like a, and you, I, you kind of knew it would be, but it, I think it's like a real um, hallmark for like what we all the things that stop motion is good at are being done here, and not being masked over and not being apologized for. Like so exactly. much, there's so much theatrical stop motion, which is. As you know, my something that is re- very dear to me, and I was really impressed to see it, not just in a in a motion picture, but done in a done in a way that I like I couldn't afford to do. Do you know what I mean? Like just done up completely. They yeah, do the really- big that fucking mushroom cloud is. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting that you can. Um, I think you know Wes definitely wanted to be as as low tech as possible but still make a film that you know is marketable nowadays mm-hmm. um and it's very interesting to work on something where you're finding all of these low tech uh means of of achieving a particular image but not because you that's all you can afford right in fact you know in in many cases it would have been probably cheaper to do uh, digital crowd oh, yeah. extension. Digi- I, I would imagine that that mushroom cloud would have caught, would have, that you could, you could snatch that out of a box probably if you did yeah, that as a CG. Right. Yeah. But you guys could have also like 3D printed, um, like when the boat's traveling across the water, instead of using that, the tried and true kind of the cellophane trick mm-hmm. for, for ripples and waves, you guys probably could have 3D printed those and kind of ran those into a cycle. Yeah. We even looked into that. Yeah. Uh, our, 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 our animation director, Mark Waring, had worked on a, a commercial where they did 3D printed uh, 
waves at sea. It was just like a cube, and on the surface of it, you you saw this these undulating mm -hmm. waves. And uh, and we looked at it, and Wes said, "Yeah, interesting, but I think we'll just go with the clean film." Yeah, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. He wanted it to be. We did use some three D printing, but not for any replacement faces. All of the faces of human characters were individually hand sculpted and hand painted uh as opposed to 3d printing is that right yeah is that widely yeah. known because i i would have completely yeah, I didn't know guessed that. Yeah, yeah i would have guessed it was 3d printing and i'm a nerd <laughs> you're yeah, a huge um, nerd <laughs> so if yeah, i didn't it know particularly challenging uh with like the character of tracy yeah with all those freckles she has 300 freckles on her face. <laughs> dude <laughs> And with all the replacement mouths uh, and full replacement faces, those freckles had to all line up. You know what's kind of funny, though? That, that That's one of the things that I kind of love about stop motion is that on different scales, there's different different. There's so many different types of people doing all this work. But I feel like you'd be hard pressed to find the thing that you feel like, fuck, no one's going to want to do this. And I feel like in stop motion, there's always somebody who's yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's my fucking th I'm the freckle guy. Yeah. Like, there's a guy. There's always somebody. No. And, and even uh, I, I have to really take my hat off to Andy Gent and his team. Love that man. He is amazing. And uh, uh, he, he was the the puppet creator. Um, and you know, did both dogs and humans. And he had just an amazing dedicated team of artists. Yeah. And, you know, when, when the word came down that, no, we're going to hand sculpt all of these things. I, I'm like going, I'm losing sleep over it. And Andy, who's the one who has to actually do it, isn't, he's just going, yeah, okay, whatever, Wes. We'll, yeah. We'll, that's fine. Yeah, that's great. He, that's because awesome. he, you know, he's got people on his team who are just like, really? We get to hand sculpt all these replacement faces? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're thrilled by it. You know, I think everyone involved in this kind of work absolutely loves, you know, every aspect of it. And we don't necessarily want to find the easy way out of a, uh, out of a problem. The people who don't enjoy it just don't stay in it yeah for I, right I, I once saw behind it was i think it was a nightmare before christmas interview with henry Selleck. uh this was before i was working and he said um something to the to the extent of like you know the yes it's really painstaking work this kind of work and yes it's it's laborious and it's detail oriented but um but you know if you don't so or so if you don't love doing it, uh, if you don't love the process, you can't do this kind of work just for the product. Like if you don't love the process, you can't do it. And I remember thinking like, fuck, I don't know if I love anything that much. And then but he was totally like <laughs> then w once I started doing all of that more, I really realized that like, oh, no, I do enjoy it. And anything I don't enjoy, it can't you you can't do for more than really short stints of time. Right. Like the only things you can maintain uh, at the like quality level that, that you need to are things that you're like, Oh yeah, I do want to, you know, I am last night I animated uh, a rock explosion 
and it's I I've done. I it. saw it on Instagram. It looks yeah, great, yeah. by the way. I've yeah. done it ten million times. It's like a magic trick. Like I don't think about it anymore. And I was like, I still love doing this. That's so awesome. dumb, but yeah. I, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, you know, there are things that um, you've done a lot of that still give you joy. Like you know, for me, it's a lot of times it's things like plotting out perspective buildings mm -hmm. i love doing that and, and just figuring figuring it out i'm not very good at uh math uh i'm i'm fair at geometry but i've come up with these little mind games to help me figure that kind of stuff out and i still really love doing it mm -hmm. and i think it's the reason why I, I didn't become an animator because i was actually interested in trying my hands at animation when i was like i don't know 14 or something i was doing clay animation and and what i realized was i really like making this stuff mm -hmm. but i don't like the whole thing of moving it around mm -hmm. i i didn't really get that sense of gratification yep. that an animator gets from from making it move yeah in fact you know i you know you have to go through that process of going oh making it move is going to ruin it right <laughs> right right you know i was making these beautiful little sculptures in clay and and then you know once i started moving them around it's just like it doesn't look as good as it did before right right uh, before you went to cal arts where were where were you geographically are you from the Pacific Northwest? No, I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in Menlo Park. Oh, is that Florida. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I grew up, you know, my childhood was in the 60s. And it's the era of drive-ins and... And free love? Yeah. And that and <laughs> for little little Paul, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't study films. I mean, you if you wanted to see a film uh, more than once, you just had to go to the theater mm. over and over to see it, and and wait for it to come on TV when it was going to get mercilessly butchered. Right, by the censors. You yeah, know, every every little thing that was. A little too violent, or a little too sexy, or well, you know, we were or, we were just talking about this earlier today. Uh, I was saying to somebody how like it just dawned on me that my kids will never see the TV edited film. Yeah, you know, so they'll never know the like do the right thing with uh, twenty Mickey Ficky D batteries. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or or um, what was the, was it Goodfellas? They cut for TV, and it was just sort of like. Uh, um, forget you. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of forget you. You cut Goodfellas for TV. What's left? But right, did those it's, people go out of? Uh, uh, did did they go into the poorhouse? The people whose job it was specifically to do the sounds like overdubs, you know, yeah, for ABC I to do so. the joke. Although actually. you know what, I think there are still markets that require that sort of thing. Yeah, like the like airline market. Airline, yeah. Airline, they they cut things for they cut things for content uh, for airplanes. And then, of course, there's uh, a whole bunch of people I knew at CalArts uh, got work uh, editing um, porn for the different markets. Yeah, we uh, yeah, I mean, that, we worked with the people at Bent that, yeah, yeah. that were yeah, edit yeah, specifically that, that editing big, pornography. That yeah, big, you know, market for for editors for a long time was uh, 
you you know basically one region say you know the in the south or something you could only show three thrusts right oh goodness that sort of thing you know it's just weird rules um or you couldn't show anything yeah you know you basically porn without the porn right um just the story yeah Yeah. oh the brilliant (laughs) acting yeah yeah so okay so you came from menlo park yeah and um how did cal arts get on your radar uh well there's a lot that leads up to that basically um i the you know i was i was sculpting monsters and dinosaurs at a really early age uh and i was pretty interested in that sort of thing i i think you know as far as knowing the names of people behind the scenes on films mm-hmm. ray harryhausen had to have been the first person yeah. i knew of i was probably aware of him when i was i mean i knew a ray harryhausen movie at a very young age because we used to go to you know saturday kitty matinees of jason and the argonauts mm. and mysterious island that sort of thing uh and so that was of of great interest to me but the thing that really sent me over and made it really clear that okay i am going to go into the film business was planet of the apes and i became really fascinated with the makeup in planet of the apes i loved that film but the makeup just i just thought that was the coolest thing ever that Mm -hmm. all of these famous actors, some of whom I was, I was familiar with from other films like Roddy McDowell, mm-hmm. uh, and, and James Whitmore and, and people like that. Uh, you know, the, the transformation just astounded me. And so I became pretty obsessed with the whole prosthetic makeup thing. And that was the direction that I was going in for a long, long time, uh, through my, uh, teen years, even into my early twenties, I was, was going to be like live action, live prosthetic action, makeup. Prosthetic makeup. Mm-hmm. I started moving more away from the whole monster thing and into character makeups. I like did, like I had a roommate when I was living in Oakland, and he agreed to be a guinea pig, and like I I turned him into Mick Jagger, and I turned him into Jack. Oh no, I turned myself into Jack Nicholson, uh, and I did a whole bunch of character makeups, and. I submitted it, um, my portfolio that I was doing entirely on my own. I, I, it had been years since high school. I was working for Xerox uh, in San Francisco in, in uh, like 1980. And I submitted a portfolio of work that I did to CalArts and I was accepted. And my sister, uh, helped me out with the uh, tuition because uh, I didn't have any money. And fucking so, Xerox. Here, here. In 1982, <laughs> I was I was 20 years old by the time I went to college. But the thing was, I felt like I. It was very useful for me to have a lot of this real world experience, and ha- you know, I I was I was in, you know, I was starting out in art school with people around me who were all quite a bit younger and had never worked and they had this is fresh out of high school for them this yeah, is like they're, the 18 they're, they're 18 19 year olds right school, yeah and i'm 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 a guy 
you know, had worked for the last three years for Xerox. Um, but I had, I, I had all this, uh, this work that I'd done with masks and makeup and puppets and that sort of thing. And CalArts, interestingly enough, was a very, the, the art curriculum there was very theory based. There wasn't a lot of, you know, it wasn't a great school to go to, to for studio time techniques mm -hmm. and to learn how to paint and to learn how to sculpt. But the fact was I taught some taught myself so much of that, that that was sort of already a given. And I really got into the, the theoretical aspect of it and became really interested in finding context for all of this work that I was doing more than producing more sculpture. I was just like looking for context. And so I started developing uh, stories and doing installation art using it. And uh, what was your it, program? Because I know CalArts has in the art, art, art and design school, art and design school. Yeah. Cause there's, went, they have a film program. Yeah. I understand they have a writing, they have a creative writing program. Have, oh, they may now they didn't. They uh, did. Yeah, they do now. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I, I went into the art program rather than the film or film graphics because the art program provides you with a studio and I wanted, I needed a place to yeah. make all this stuff that I was making. And Can um, uh, We're going to break really quick for a uh, snack break. Uh, for a snack break, <laughs> you might be able to hear Rob taking a bite of his <laughs> rosemary cracker. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to take a quick break and then come back because I have... Uh, a serious question for you about your time at Cal Arts. I'll just ask it now and then you can answer it when we get back. Okay. Did you ever do LSD with David Daniels at Cal Arts? Okay, we're back from our commercial break. Uh, and we left on a cliffhanger. Did you do LSD with uh, David Daniels at Cal Arts? I never did LSD with David Daniels. I did LSD with a lot of other people. <laughs> but, <laughs> but not David. Wow. <laughs> um, so you you were in their design department. Art and design, yeah. Art and design. And, uh, primarily, actually, even the art and design department was divided into, you know, design and art. And I was more art. But... Uh, the art school did have a, a very, very simple, uh, video studio with star wipes. <laughs> no, we didn't even have that. Um, we had a couple of pneumatic machines, uh, the three quarter inch, right. uh, editing, editing equipment. But I also eventually got access to the color studio, which was, the film schools I, I i had a lot of friends in the film school yeah uh, naturally and in animation and uh we did a lot of projects together and i helped them out with things i would make make masks and mm -hmm. sculpt things for them and uh they would give you, you lsd know, help me out with uh, uh shooting stuff mm. um and what, what's that program it's it's four years well, I actually did my undergraduate and my graduate work there. So right. I finished my master's degree there. Um, largely because I had I had embarked on some insanely uh, 
ambitious project uh, that was entitled Giant Monsters versus Property Owners. And it was, uh, it was a crazy um, kind of, oh, I don't know how to describe it. It was definitely a formalist kind of film project, but I was creating my own Japanese monster movie. Yes. Um, and the Japanese monster movie would always be on the television of these little dramas that were being car uh, played out in front of them. People like a suburban couple uh, arguing in their living room. But the, the Japanese monster movie was the through line in the background. And so I put a lot of work into making this Japanese monster <laughs> movie that was going to be this thing that would be on the television. The, um, and, and all of the little dramas that got played out in front of it were also shot uh, using luminance keys because I didn't have the equipment to do chroma keys. Um, and everything took place in these miniature force perspective sets that I built. Uh, I had been really inspired by a couple of uh, art art filmmakers uh, like Erica Beckman and Tony Ausler, who had done these really interesting films, videos using uh, constructed sets and sometimes miniatures. And I wanted to just sort of, oh, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to really detail out these miniatures. And, and that's what really led to me deciding that, hey, you know what I really like more than anything else, even more than making the puppets and making the masks, is making these sets and designing these sets. It just thrilled me. And I just, I would get very, very deep into it. And um, when I, when I finished my master's degree and started going out and showing my portfolio, uh, it wasn't really that difficult for me to, uh, get work. Uh, what was it? What do you remember of your, your, your first work out of, uh, the bosom of academia? The first job I did, I worked, I worked, um, I was doing sculpture for, uh, a, a company called AVG that did, uh, theme park stuff. AVG was making a um, a theme park for China. It was going to be the first theme park in Beijing. And um, we were sculpting these creatures that were sort of animatronic versions of uh, animal, part animal human hybrids, but were out of Chinese mythology, uh, like a turtle creature that was something from from uh, Chinese mythology and I guess all this stuff got packed up and sent to Beijing and then Tiananmen Square happened oh and um, suddenly there was this big clamp down <clears throat> on sort of western influences mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. sort of thing and and as far as i know the the uh, amusement that amusement park never happened did you when you were sculpting were you doing the early exploratory sculpting so you're doing like little 10 inch uh, or 12 inch sculpts no we were we were i was working with a very seasoned sculptor who 
you know, had sculpted a lot of the stuff at uh, uh, Disneyland mm-hmm. and, and, you know, big, big sculptures. And, like, I think he was involved in the Conan, the Barbarian show at Universal. Yeah, it was at Universal and had a dragon. You know, it. you know how I know that? Do you remember, uh, do you remember, um, what the hell was it called? Jimmy B's, the pizza place that was right around the corner from Vinton's, uh, from oh, the yeah, Pettigrew yeah, building. Yeah. Yeah. So the owner of that place was this big muscly guy named Jimmy and he played Conan, Conan, not Conan. Uh, he played Conan, uh, at Universal Studios oh, and he had like a big picture of him and yeah. he was just a monstrously muscle guy anyway the, 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 the master sculptor i worked with by the way his name was uh john davies and he was one of the creators of teddy ruxpin whoa yeah he sculpted teddy ruxpin and i and and so he was involved in theme park stuff because and he got into teddy ruxpin that was a company he was one of the partners in worlds of wonder which was the company mm-hmm. that made teddy ruxpin and uh he, you know, he got into it because he was in the animatronics business and and, and doing sculptures for animatronics things. And um, in fact, uh, but he still did things for the toy business too. Mm-hmm. And I remember going over to his uh, his place, and actually, he was making a larger version of the Pee Wee Pee Wee Herman doll mm-hmm. that had come out and i sculpted the shoes on that is that right <laughs> yeah. yeah and then you know like whatever six months later i'm working for peewee's playhouse yeah you kind of you nice. you have these landmarks in your career that i've heard from from other people um because this business is so small um you know like kent burton was mm-hmm. at broadway arts um broadcast or, i'm sorry broadcast arts uh david daniels you um, you worked on Pee Wee's Playhouse, and you you also worked with Lily Tomlin for a time, right? Yeah, that was another thing that uh, happened because of David Daniels. Uh, Lily Tomlin and uh, Jane Wagner had wanted to make a uh, stop motion animated TV special uh, featuring her character Edith Ann, uh, who was this little girl that Lily Tomlin used to play on Laugh-In. She just, she would be rocking in a giant rocking chair. Yeah, yes, yes, and, yes. And she, I and, can visualize it. yeah, and she yeah. had this little girl voice. Well, Lily was, you know, in her 50s at this point and didn't think she could play the character anymore. And, but thought that animation, she could still do the voice. And, right. And uh, so... For about nine months, I worked in uh, Lily's garage, which she lived in um, uh, uh, on DeMille Avenue. It was, you know, it was this gated area that that originally Cecil B. DeMille built, and her house was the old W.C. Fields house, and I worked in that garage. Uh, with David Daniels and uh, I hired uh, Dave Waddle to uh, help me build the sets, and we built this whole world for puppets included uh, for Edith Ann. Uh, we hadn't really 
made puppets yet. There were some maquettes that David had sculpted. Um, Waddle or Daniels? David Daniels. Yeah. Um, that man can sculpt. Right, his sister sculpted his sister the, actually fucking sculpted, nightmare before Christmas. Yeah, right? his, uh, uh, Shelley actually did sculpt. I think the the Edith Ann figure, which was really beautiful. Oh, that would uh, make sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so in a pinch, David Daniels can sculpt. I didn't know this. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of sculpture in in Buzzbox. If you look at that, that that has a lot of uh, you know um, three dimensional sculpting in it. Wait, it's what? Not all wait, what? What? Wait, what's Buzzbox? Buzz That's Box the big was, film. That That's was his. Thing. That was his thesis film. That, Cal that was his CalArts really, thesis film. Really launched him and resulted in him getting. You know, that was his calling card for years, and it's what got him his the work on Pee Wee's Playhouse and on uh, uh, Sledgehammer. And oh, that's uh, right. Um, the the. Jackson Five thing. And, well, what, uh, Sesame Street. Where in the timeline is this Lily Tomlin um, pre-production and your work on Pee Wee's Playhouse? Oh, Pee Wee's Playhouse was probably. I think I did that in. I want to say the summer of '89, and Lily Tomlin, the stuff for Lily Tomlin was uh, between. Uh, uh, 90, uh, 91 and 92. So it was like around the same time when you visited Portland. Sorry. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, ki it's killing fact. me. So I have to, I have to know what happened to the Lily Tomlin show. Well, okay. Lily Tomlin was getting a lot of pushback from the various studios saying, no, the stop motion thing. We, they can't sell that. Mm -hmm. uh, there, we, we actually had a meeting at Hanna-Barbera and one of the, one of the suits there sat us down and said, you know, it's been proven that people can't look at this stop motion stuff for more than a few seconds. It's fine for <laughs> it's been proven. But you can't. But yeah, it's a Trump fact. Yeah, yeah, right. He, 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 he was, you know. It's for those, there's studies, they're one, they're, they're fantastic studies that are conclusive that you can't watch yeah. stop motion animation. Did you know that, that, uh, 89% of all statistics are made up. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's um, horrible. But anyway, the, um, so you guys couldn't find a buyer for it. So yeah. And they ended up taking it to, uh, was it Klasky Chupo or Phil mm -hmm. Roman? Mm-hmm. I think it was Klasky Chupo, uh, and they did a 2D thing over at Klasky Chupo with it. Um, so that was that. Was that. Did Wait, the 2D they... thing come out? Yeah, yeah. The first the first special did come out. Um, and I don't know. It, did it look like Schoolhouse Rock? Schoolhouse Rock? No, it looked more like Rugrats. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So real quick. No, you ask your question because I'm going to eat another loud, uh, well, noisy, uh, noisy cracker. Mine is more of a statement because I, I have a, a Netflix pitch pitch now. Right. There's so many stories about these amazing projects that came close and then yeah. didn't happen for some reason. I feel like that the 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 project that almost happened show like documentary series right. on Netflix would be I would be. So glued to the screen, right? The toys, the toys we grew up with, kind of 
Yeah, that that same that same kind of vibe, but like just digging up so that basically you would find these things that never found a life, and you give them just a smidge of life, and you get to see the that the little bit of this amazing thing that could have happened. Because what you're talking about sounds fucking amazing, and then the special that happens sounds totally fucking forgettable, and it's tragic. You've got another one of those too. Well, I, Mars attacks. Maybe it is sort of forgettable because I, I did see it, but I don't really, I can't really recall what the the style was when it finally got made. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a bit of a disappointment for I think all concerned. In the same way that you know, I was talking to uh, um, Andy Riley, who was one of the uh, writers of. Um, Slacker Cats, which was oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. a demo pilot that I did in uh, about 2001. And um, it was for um, the WB Network, mm-hmm. which doesn't exist anymore. Wubba wubba. Um, and they had had the problem with that one. Everyone loved the Slacker Cats demo pilot that we did, but they had done another show called the oblongs which really crashed and burned because it was kind of depressing it was about a family of freaks Mm -hmm. and oh i remember the oblongs some of the characters had no arms Mm -hmm. and things like that and they it it was kind of a bleak thing and so it got very poor ratings and they just decided we're not in the animated tv series right right which is Ironic because their mascot was Michigan J Frog. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, but we're not doing animation. Was that like, Slacker Cats? Was the Robbie the Reindeer guys wrote that? Didn't they or yeah, something yeah, like uh, that? Uh, Kevin Cecil and Andy Riley. Yeah, they also took over. You know, they're great writers, and and they uh, they worked a lot with uh, Armano Iannucci, and in fact, they took over. Um, Veep. Okay. And, and they, uh, I think they uh, were showrunners on like the last two seasons of Veep. Interesting. Yeah. That's that's our, one of my uh, favorite TV she, series in the entire world. I know, I it is so good. Yeah, Have you seen Death of Stalin? Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's great. It's available on it's, Google Play right yes, now. It's, oh. it's, uh, Maybe I'll watch it tonight. It's It's great because it's funny and horribly dark and tragic at the same time so it's brilliant satire so... is king right now yeah well, it's such a good way to understand what the say, fuck is happening you know, recent events have sort of killed satire in a lot of ways because we're living it's in like, it yeah it's, it's like <laughs> how do you make you know make what's going on right now any more satirical than it right. already is. I was reading a, I was reading an article about uh what's his name? Roseanne's ex husband. Oh uh, Tom Arnold, Arnold uh who's doing his vice show and he's talking about how crazy it is that he's uh like a like a a star in this world. Like he's a star because he's like a B level guy and Trump works on a B level. Like he's like, he's just saying like, what, like, could you possibly imagine Tom Arnold being relevant, especially politically? We're living in crazy town. Yeah. Yeah. We are indeed. 
Well, but so anyway, after after um, doing the Lily Tomlin project with David, um, it was it was the summer before I started on Lil, the Lily project that uh, I um, had visited uh, Portland and met these people and um, David Alshol, who was the president of Wilbur Studios, came down to LA at one point and we had breakfast and and he ended up inviting David to uh, come to Portland and David and his wife Cologne were expecting at the time and they were just thinking you know Portland seems like probably a better place to raise <laughs> a kid than than LA <clears throat> and so and you followed the, shortly thereafter? I, yeah, not too long after. Uh, although the first project I did when I came to Portland was not with David, but it was a commercial that Mark Gustafson was directing. And it was the very last Raisins commercial uh, at the Vinton Studios. Who, who was it? Who was the star? Or the... There was no star. Oh, okay. <laughs> and basically, the, the, the California Raisin Board had said, you know... We got our message out. We don't need to do any more advertising. All done. Yeah, yeah. all wow. done. So they basically wrapped up the whole thing, and that was the end of that campaign. But uh, it was the, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, they wanted me, they specifically wanted me to start introducing, you know, um, an L.A. Aesthetic? Well, an approach to doing miniature sets and mm -hmm. whatnot that wasn't clay. Yeah. Because they had, you know, they'd been fighting physics with these giant clay sets for mm -hmm. years. And I think Will always felt that, well, it's the, it's the clay craft handmade quality that is really uh, their appeal. And I was sort of there to say, yeah, but we don't necessarily have to go with we can make something that's very handmade right. and seductive in the same way without it being quite so impractical right as a as a building technique and you can still make everything out of clay but you just don't have to make everything right. always out of clay yeah <laughs> but when i you know is like i was a bit of a a pariah there when I initially started coming in and and because everyone feared for their job. Were, that's how that's how I think of you, Paul. Is generally as a pariah making making things like phones and props out of Sculpey, and I was just going, yeah, let's let's uh, let's sand these down a little bit and mm -hmm. maybe get the fingerprints out of them yeah. and and start. You know, I, I'd like to refine this because mm -hmm. it's not. You know, these props aren't going to work with the set that we're building, which is, you know, it's still very wacky, but it's smooth surfaces and it's fairly refined. But but that had its charm in 74, right, or 75 when Closed on Mondays won the Academy Award yeah. and Claymation was like really fully introduced to the world. That charm had its place. People are like, wow, that looks different. That looks interesting. But you're talking about yeah, 20 and, years later. Actually... Right? It's interesting because probably about a year, year before I went there, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about how the claim, the era of the claymation was coming to an end. Oh. Advertisers 
mm-hmm. um, had been it, it, intrigued by it, but uh, it had kind of while, run its course. But it had run its course, yeah. and yeah. it was not a look that they were interested in anymore. And of course, this was the beginning of uh, at least computer aided animation. Mm-hmm. Um, full 3d computer animation was was being used a little bit but it was still pretty rough you know there were there were the you know the dire straits Oof. rolling Stones <laughs> videos you know and you look at that stuff and and even back then we were kind of like yeah i mean the the rolling stones hard woman was pretty cool when it first came out but you look at that stuff and it was just like yeah it's not it's not quite so I rem- I still remember when the when Pixar made Listerine commercials. It was the first time I had oh, heard of right, Pixar. Right. Yeah, Jan Pinkova, those- I think, was one of the first directors of oh, really? Listerine commercials. Yeah. I just remember seeing those and being like, Oh, this is fucking cool. Yeah. And and I feel like that was the first time that I saw CG, not and not as special effects CG, but just like three D CG right. where it was like uh, like, oh, this isn't just self consciously computer like this isn't just like mind's eye where i you know where you're it was like they were like they were like they were like adding cartoonness to right. the into the fold Doing squash and scratch and, right and and and, kind of and they were kind of using in those they were using the fact that like the bottle had no arms but there's like invisible arms throwing around these like boxing right. gloves or whatever they were doing in the oh, right, spot yeah. guys let's break uh for one last um one last cold hard cash sponsor um, and come right back. Hey, you should make She's that being theme loud. Music. Hi. Hi. All right. So we're back from our commercial break from our sponsors to the beautiful serenade of grape. The dulcet tones. Yeah. <laughs> like we're making uh, Okja too over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to be part of the podcast. Okay. Um, so this is our last segment of the podcast, and I have a question for you about Isle of Dogs. Yeah. yeah. Is it accurate to say that there was a work stoppage on set for a couple days or maybe a week because a Nazi-era bomb was found behind the warehouse by that a construction is crew? entirely incorrect. That happened on Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, damn, yeah. I got my laurel mixed up. <laughs> no, but it's no. the same studio, right? Literally oh, yeah, the yeah, same yeah. It was same the studio. Studios and and basically that that was my route to get to work was I I would I rode my bike to work all the time and rode along the canal there where they discovered a, a UXB. Is um, that what it was? A UXB? Unexploded bomb. Yeah. Oh, oh, there we go. Oh, okay, yeah. Um and um rather than trying to remove it, they decided to detonate it. So they had to basically get everyone out of there um, for the day when they did that. And it went off? Yeah. Yeah, it was on the news. Uh-huh. The BBC showed it. In fact, if you if you find on Vimeo Mark Gustafson's film, They Shot in the Dark, he actually shows the TV footage of the oh, of explosion. Hmm. Yeah. I was, at, uh, I was at Shadow Machine recently and... I was. This is great. So the pig is only barking when I when I speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. And someone, uh, I think it was David Trappy, 
was like, you have to see they shot it in the dark. Mark's mini documentary about the making of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm -hmm. I still haven't seen it yet. Oh, I recommend it. It's, it's, uh, it's very. So you guys, you guys. um... But he did it. He did a thing that he wasn't supposed to do. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, now I definitely want to see it. Um, How long were you in? um, Three Mills is uh, a stop motion studio in London proper right like in the city that was set up for fantastic it, mr fox it's in east london uh so it's not you know we're not talking about being a stone's throw from trafalgar square or anything sure. like that or it's big not, ben yeah um no that's 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 a, it's a few miles east of that it's in the old industrial district it's very close to um the queen elizabeth olympic park mm-hmm. where the you know uh, 2010 olympics took place and uh but how long are you in london for because your home I was is there here for two years you were there for two years how much of that was uh how much of that was physical production versus pre-production and fab well the way it worked is adam stockhausen who is wes's live action production designer yeah. worked with wes on the film for i think four or five months um but he was going on he helped get the sort of ball rolling and they he and Wes had kind of worked out some of the basic principles that would be applied to the design like referencing uh, uh, Edo era Yukioi illustrations and that sort of thing and also they hit on the work of um, I'm gonna suffer word name phasia here um um oh it'll come to me um anyway the photo uh one of the photographers that we used um for referencing trash and industrial waste and that sort of thing um anyway the um in september i got the call and basically, I, from the time that I first heard about the job and knew the title of it uh, to the time that I was on a plane to London was a little over a week. <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. Yeah. And, and your, your, and your so wife I was, was just like, I was there in London and Adam. And your wife was okay with it? Who, I mean, who's also a brilliant celebrated yeah, uh, filmmaker. yeah Joanna, Joanna was... She was uh, like, go, get the yeah, hell out of here. I mentioned Joanna earlier as being a friend of mine from CalArts who I eventually married. Um, Who's a kick-ass filmmaker. To, yeah. to, uh, when I came... At, definitely one of the reasons for me remaining in Portland. Um, but... Um, uh, but you turn to her I, and you're I, like, oh, I just got off the phone with Wes. Yeah, he yeah. needs me in a week. You know, I think we both, we knew that it was going to be difficult, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think she agreed. Yeah, this is something you kind of have to do. Yeah. You can't, yeah. You can't yeah. turn this down. Kind of everything about it, too, yeah. right? I mean, you're uh, you're a cinephile in general, but you definitely have a, a Japanese cinephile bug. Well, in, and, fact, in fact, like I was saying, the... the, the my project that I was doing at Cal Arts for all those years was very steeped in in Japanese cinema, and it was funny because I was doing this master class a few months ago, and I was just showing early work, and it was only while I was doing the master class that it hit me that oh my god, 
all this stuff, you know, I was doing kabuki masks. Mm -hmm. There was all this mm -hmm. Japanese-influenced work that I was doing, and I, it was just sort of funny to realize for the first time, oh, everything I've been doing my whole career has been leading up to, you know, working on something like Isle of Dogs because of my love of Japanese cinema and whatnot. But anyway, uh, Adam Stockhausen was going on to work on uh, Ready Player One because he's not only Wes Anderson's guy, he's Spielberg's guy now. Um, and he's amazing. And I, I wish I had gotten the opportunity to actually work side by side with him a bit, but it really was him passing the baton on to me. Mm -hmm. We probably spent all of three hours together and he just gave me all the email exchanges that he'd done with Wes and said, okay, this is basically what we've determined so far. And this is, you know, we have some uh, concept artists already working on a few of these things and it's all yours. Yeah. <laughs> and so I were you intimidated? Were you scared at first to be like, holy smokes because well, of the scale it was, of it, it? I think the most, the most difficult thing, the most intimidating thing at the beginning was the fact that I realized I was going to be working with a team, this huge team, none of whom I had ever worked with before. Right. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I was given the opportunity uh, to hire Kurt Enderley, my art director. And that made life much, much easier for me because no, having one person there that I had mm -hmm. a already had a working relationship with because I gave Kurt his first job in in stop motion animation uh, back years ago because when you say that that you were walking into like an army of people you're talking about like 200 plus motherfuckers on this when you guys are up and running and shooting it's it's like an army of yeah, full full on yeah i mean we didn't have the puppet fabrication happening uh at three mill studios it was over at andy gent studio but you know it was a stone's throw away right. i mean it was really nearby uh but yeah it was uh yeah to 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 go into something like that where you know there aren't any familiar faces and you're in a strange, well, a, a foreign country. Mm -hmm. But those folks had already worked together on previous West yeah, films, yeah. right? I so was, you were I penetrating. Was, exactly. I was, I was. The Here one. comes the pariah once yeah. again, right? <laughs> He's back. Yeah. I, They're coming to be like, can we sand this a little bit more or you're <laughs> fucking fired? I, I think there were a lot of people there just, just saying, thinking to themselves, but. Why couldn't they get Nelson? Right. <laughs> Nelson Lowry, who's one of my dearest, dearest friends. Uh, and actually the reason that I have this job, because uh, he was the one who recommended me uh, for, for the project. Um, he uh, He's production designer on Fantastic Mr. Fox, but he had gone over to Leica and was uh, working on Kubo at the time. So he wasn't available to work on it, which was very fortunate for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that was that was the thing. You know, I, I don't know that I was ever scared. I, I lost sleep a little bit, but mm -hmm. um, I I think it was just because uh, I've 
I've sort of built so many stop motion facilities from the ground up. I was kind of familiar with that process. That wasn't necessarily um, such a difficult thing. It was just, I could, you know, all of our drafts people and graphics people and all of those, you know, uh, people that it was my job to hire, um, I was, you know, I didn't know any of them. Yeah. I hadn't worked with any of them before. And they had amazing resumes. All these drafts people, yeah, I just came off the new James Bond movie, or I came off of the last Star Wars movie. And, you know, the, 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 the drafts people that you were able to choose from uh, were amazing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, like our assistant art director went on to become art director on the new uh, Netflix uh uh, Dark Crystal? Dark Crystal yeah. series. Are they, is Dark Crystal shooting at Three Mills? No, it's actually shooting uh, near Pinewood, but not at Pinewood. Because Pinewood, that's Star Wars, right? Pinewood is like yeah, the big Pinewood famous... Star Wars and James Bond. And James Bond. Wow. Yeah. So that's amazing. Oh, so uh, having worked with you on and off uh, in different capacities, mostly as your producer in the last like eight years, you have like a, an incredible bedside manner as a director and as a production designer. So I, I'm flattering you by saying, I'm not surprised that you were able to penetrate this group that's been around for years and come in in a managerial position and make friends and make nice with a group that typically when a manager comes into a new group, everyone's like, fuck that guy. It, it mm-hmm. really helped a huge amount that these people had all worked together on, you know, some of them went as far back as Corpse Bride and they'd done Dear God. and they'd done uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox and Frankenweenie, all of which yeah. were shot. That's at three 15 mills. years. So worth those of work, people, yeah. that core group, uh, plus a few people who had had fair amount of experience with Ardman, like Tristan Oliver, our DP, he um, he's amazing, and he probably has shot more stop motion features than anyone uh, because he's he shot Chicken Run and Fantastic Mr. Fox and Frankenweenie and uh, uh, Paranorman and uh, and then this. It's uh, And he really knows his stuff. And so his team was dialed in. And fortunately, we had uh, a, a construction supervisor, uh, uh, Roddy McDonald, who was able to also bring in this amazing group of uh, model makers and carpenters, his regular team, again, many of whom had, had worked on uh, these other stop motion films. So, you know, putting the team together was actually no sweat off of my brow. That's awesome. Particularly, it was, it, it was there. And a lot of the model makers that came in, you know, they came in out of this loyalty to Roddy, you know, they, they would follow him anywhere. And our set dresser, Barry Jones, who's, um, he's not exclusive to stop motion. He, he does a lot of stuff for BBC Wales and he's like, he's a prop maker and set dresser on, uh, the new, uh, dark materials series that they're doing over there, but he's worked, done a lot of doctor who and, Wait, they're doing a His Dark Materials? Yeah, yeah. Really? BBC Wales. So there's a life beyond that 
that really not watchable yeah, that, Golden that, Compass? That unfortunate film. That's too bad. <laughs> that's really too bad. Well, we um, we are bumping up against the end of our, our podcast duration, but um, Paul, damn, it's good to see you. Because aside from this podcast, I haven't seen you in the flesh in this, years. This podcast is going to be the excuse, I think, in, in, in several regards to like see people that yeah, like reconnect. Yeah. We haven't seen. Well, and also yeah. there's there's a lot more to talk about. If, yeah. If you want to have me back again sometime, I'd be delighted. Oh my god, thank you. That would be awesome. And oh yeah. You can come back and and uh, and watch the pig grow to the 120 pounds she is now to the <laughs> right. to her she 400 pound up. self. Yeah. She's gonna be four. How is that? How big she's gonna get? It's up to the gods okay. at this point. Nobody really knows. She's like a tree. It's just yeah, she, she just keeps growing. Okay. Yeah, as long as as long as she doesn't get uh, sautéed mm-hmm. or uh, fried. <laughs> no, no. Unless the, yeah, there's a zombie apocalypse. But right. um, I just want to say thank you to the sponsors and a big shout out to Samala Coffee, who's just super patient as this podcast is <laughs> as, is coming to an end. Um, but Paul, it's such a, it's really great seeing you. Thank you for um, coming and hanging out with us, and we'd love to have you again. That's yeah, my absolute pleasure. And everyone who hasn't seen Isle of Dogs, go. Go do it. Go buy it. Yeah. Now you Go have to it. buy right it. Now. Go buy it on Blu-ray and yeah. buy many copies for your friends as gifts. <laughs> is there any, are, are you on any uh, BTS on the Blu-rays? Uh, do you I know? should be. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I put a face uh, to the voice. Yeah. I did a lot of, uh, I did a fairly long interview and I think I probably am fairly well represented uh, in the uh, making of book. Awesome. Oh, nice. Really cool. Unlike most making of books, the writer, uh, uh, the writers actually visited the set while we were doing the the film. Awesome. It's kind of nice. Yeah, there's been features I've worked on or the making of. Oh, come on. Afterthought. The book. Oh, no, it's not. (laughs) I won't name the picture, but holy goodness. We're talking like... The DPI must have been like 32. Oh, oh yeah, man. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. It was, I won't name I'm it. I'm always yeah. shocked whenever I see a <sighs> book or a documentary film that clearly has taken a low-res thing off the internet. You right. Know, like, there is no excuse. Yeah, yeah. You've yeah. had to have found oh, but, a better version. Of yeah, that fire your, 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 your PAs. We're gathering yeah. that information. Anyway, so, um, Paul, you're amazing. Rob, thank you for traveling to the Trevor's Living Room Studios for this next time. Maybe we'll do it uh, in your basement. We can do it wherever. Um, there is a um, artist collective in Mount Tabor here in Portland that has offered to uh, once a month they're opening up their house for uh, galleries and it offered to host us to do a live podcast. Oh, that'd from, be fun. It's a collective of, oh, of animators and filmmakers. Cool. Yeah, try to do live podcasts. I think the community would be really interested in that. I think it would be great. And hey, if it gives us more sponsors, yeah, I like cash. Um, <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I like to pay my LA producer, Justin Marshall. You're amazing. Okay. Uh, well, All cool. Right. Well, thank you very much, guys. And um, we will see you uh, on the next podcast. Thank you.